0: Welcome
1: to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are
0: organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I checked out the the weather before coming down here, and I was deceived somehow, so I feel like an idiot um, because I'm wearing corduroy pants, and it's like 75 degrees, but anyway, I'm here. Today I'm gonna talk about something that people think philosophers talk about all the time, but which philosophers actually don't talk about very much, at least not nowadays. That's the question of what life is all about. I will first sketch out a possible answer to that question that is very commonly accepted in our society, even if almost no one formulates it explicitly. Second, I will sketch out a key competitor to that view, roughly the view proposed by the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. Third, I will complicate things a bit by drawing on the Catholic theological and spiritual tradition to raise questions about the Aristotelian answer. In the end, I won't claim to have settled the question of what life is all about. That's way too much for a 40 minute talk. But perhaps I will have made it clearer what some of the issues are and what a good solution might look like. Can you hear me in the back, by the way? If I start to fade like wave or something, okay? I won't be offended. You'll be helping me do what I want to do. Um, So, okay, first then, there's a certain attitude towards life that I think is now quite common in our society. I call it feelings management. According to feelings management, the task of living consists in managing your feelings so that on balance, they're as positive as they can be. I have chosen the word feelings on purpose to cover not only emotions, but also physical sensations. Feelings management is concerned with both. In fact, figuring out how they are related is a crucial task for feelings management. For example, running a marathon is pretty unpleasant, but having run a marathon gives you a sense of accomplishment, bragging rights, and so forth. For some people, the negative sensations of pain and fatigue involved in running the race just don't outweigh the positive emotions at the end, while for others, they do. And of course, you don't just have to balance physical sensations against emotions. You also have to balance physical sensations against other physical sensations, and emotions against other emotions. It's very complicated. Feelings management is about somehow juggling your physical sensations and your emotions in such a way that overall, you end up feeling as good as possible. I think that for a lot of people, trying to live a good life means being a good feelings manager. You try to avoid feeling physical pain, but perhaps a little physical pain is a price worth paying for the sake of being healthier. You enjoy your successes, but you try to avoid gloating about them because when others feel bad in comparison, you feel guilty. You try to avoid feeling guilty, but maybe a little bit of guilt helps spur you on to accomplish something satisfying. But the ultimate test of it all is how you feel. Perhaps here I should insert a clarification. Sometimes the way something feels to you is definitely a legitimate factor to consider. For me, wearing a size eight shoe would hurt quite a lot. And that's a pretty good reason for me to wear a different size. If you need to relax by doing something fun, you should pick something that actually is fun, fun for you. So when I talk about feelings management, I don't mean the mere fact of sometimes basing decisions on your feelings. I don't mean picking ice cream flavors based on what you like and what you don't like. I mean, instead, treating all of life as if it were a trip to the ice cream store. Feelings management is when we view the whole of life solely through the lens of how things make us feel. Now notice, when I first gave the example of running a marathon, I noted that running a marathon seems to be a good choice for some feelings managers, but but a bad choice for others. What works for you might not work for me, because not everyone feels the same way about everything. So to the extent that we think about life using the principles of feelings management, To that extent, we will lean towards relativism, that's to say, towards the view that there isn't an absolute standard of what makes actions good or bad or of what makes a life good or bad. If decisions and life choices are supposed to be made on the basis of how they make us feel, then there's no reason to expect there to be moral standards that hold for everyone. Even if there are standards that hold for most people most of the time, inasmuch as those standards lead to good feelings for most people most of the time, it seems plausible that there will be a few people out there for whom deviating from these standards will feel really great. Most of us don't like torturing cats, but maybe it's a real thrill for that rare person. And this, I will mention in passing, would seem to be a weakness in the moral thinking of one of philosophy's most prominent feelings managers, namely David Hume, who seems not to have worried enough about the possibility that acting for pleasure might lead some people to perform seriously base actions. It's not merely that feelings management as a life strategy seems to entail moral relativism as a matter of logic, it's also that feelings management makes moral relativism attractive and desirable. If a certain moral principle is too challenging, if I keep failing and feeling guilty, or if adhering to it means I'll have to miss out on pleasures I'm unwilling to give up, then I can just say that that moral principle isn't true for me. Moral relativism is great for minimizing and even eliminating guilt, which is a very unpleasant feeling. If, on the other hand, I like behaving in a certain way, then maybe I will decide that this way of acting is right for me. Once I've decided that, I will feel even better about that kind of action, and I will be more likely to persist in doing it. So moral relativism is attractive to feelings managers. I have described feelings management as an approach to life, and I've claimed that it goes well with moral relativism. Now let me add that it goes well with other kinds of relativism. Sometimes people say things like this, maybe God exists for you, but he doesn't exist for me. There's something extremely bizarre about such statements. If the word God is being used correctly here, then it's extremely difficult to see how God's existence or non-existence could vary from person to person. Whether God exists or doesn't exist, surely it's the same for everyone. Nonetheless, people do say things like that. Why? Here's my suggestion. Thoughts about God affect some people's feelings in a pretty strong way, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. That makes thoughts about God. Sorry, that makes thoughts about God prime candidates for feelings management. Perhaps some people use God and religion in general as part of their toolkit for feelings management. Believing in God, praying, and engaging in certain religious rituals gives certain people a sense of mission, a sense of consolation, and so forth. Other people, by contrast, find religion really stressful. It's boring, and when it's not boring, it's threatening. So for these people, God and religion are not helpful parts um, of a toolkit for feelings management. So when people say God exists for me, maybe what they mean is that believing in God is helpful as part of their feelings management strategy. And when people say God doesn't exist for me, Maybe what they mean is that believing in God is not helpful to them as part of their strategy for feelings management. Maybe they even mean that disbelieving in God is helpful to them in this way. The point I'm getting at here is that feelings management fits well, not just with moral relativism, but also with relativism about the very nature of reality. Relativism about what exists and what doesn't. I've given the example of belief in God, but it's not the only thing that this might apply to. Consider the question of whether there is a fixed human nature. Some people find this helpful, so they say it's true for them, while others don't, so they say it's not true for them. If this is right, then it's interesting to know that somehow, for feelings managers, you don't believe things because you think they're true. You believe things because doing so helps you feel better. Different things give different people different feelings, and so we end up in a further and deeper kind of relativism, a relativism not just about right and wrong, but about how the world is. I presume you can tell I'm not a big fan of relativism or of feelings management. If I had a lot of time, Maybe I could lay out some reasons for rejecting them. But you know, it has to be admitted, it would not be super easy. Usually, that's because deep philosophical issues are very hard to argue about. Usually the way you try to settle a dispute is by appealing to a deeper principle. So for example, you can sometimes settle a dispute in engineering by appealing to some principle of physics or chemistry. But in philosophy, pretty much by definition, you are trying to get as close to the foundations as you can. At a certain point, you can't appeal to principles any deeper than the ones you are considering because you've already hit the foundation. This doesn't mean that there's no truth about the matter. And it doesn't mean that the truth can't be discovered. But it does mean that making progress is very difficult. And I think that at this point, we're close to being in that kind of situation. So instead of arguing against relativism and feelings management, I'm just going to set them aside and move in a different direction. I'm going to take it as granted that there's something implausible about them, and I'm going to explore alternatives. The first alternative, which you could call the human flourishing view is pretty much the view found in Aristotle. The basic idea is this. For every type of living organism, there are things that count as doing well and other things that count as not doing well. The philosopher Philip of Foote called this natural goodness, goodness according to your nature. If you're a squirrel, then. These are some things that belong to doing well, having all four legs, not being eaten by a hawk, gathering a lot of nuts, making baby squirrels. Relativism makes no sense for talking about squirrels. Having only three legs is bad for a squirrel and so is being eaten by a hawk. Failing to gather nuts is bad and so is going baby squirrelless. Now, of course, there are some complications here. For example, losing a leg is bad for a squirrel, but it might be a little bit legitimate price to pay for something else, such as escaping from a trap. For our purposes here, getting into those sorts of details isn't necessary. What's important to focus on is that there are good and bad ways for squirrel lives to go. Squirrels can flourish and they can fail to flourish. Flourishing is good and not flourishing is bad. Well, human beings are living organisms too. And so not just for squirrels, but also for us, there's a difference between what counts as flourishing and what doesn't. As with squirrels, relativism doesn't make good sense. Having the right number of legs is good for us. Being struck by a car is not So far, that sounds a lot like squirrels. But with humans, there's also a difference because we have reason and free will. So for humans, flourishing means not just having good things happen to us and not just doing things properly by instinct, the way a squirrel gathers nuts, but also and especially making good decisions and using our reason well. So a flourishing human life is a life in which humans use reason well in order to make intelligent choices that promote the flourishing of our kind of organism. Eating well, getting some exercise, raising our children, being true to our friends, all of these contribute to life going well. Further, since we can choose these things through reason and free will, we are responsible for what happens in a way that squirrels can't be. And therefore, it makes makes sense to speak in terms of praise and blame, moral goodness, and badness. Now, Aristotle has a word for the life lived well. It's a Greek word, of course. Eudaimonia, which can be translated as happiness or blessedness. He defines it as the activity of the soul according to virtue throughout a whole life. It's not merely the capacity for living and acting, but the actualization of that capacity. It's not just any old way of living and acting, but living and acting according to virtue or excellently, which for humans means according to reason. And it's not just having a good day, but something that characterizes a whole life, or anyway, as much of it as is possible. Now, given that we started with feelings management, it seems appropriate to say something about Aristotle's views on what a good life feels like. For Aristotle, it's pleasurable to use our powers, and it's more pleasurable to use them well, and it's more pleasurable still to use them on the best objects. It's fun to look at things. It's more fun to look at them carefully. And it's funnest when the things we're looking at are beautiful. So generally speaking, good activities are enjoyable activities. If life is, in a sense, a big complex activity, then a life lived well will be a pleasurable life. And this is what Aristotle says. So while pleasure doesn't show up in his official definition of happiness, nonetheless, he holds that pleasure emerges from excellent activity as its natural completion. A life that is happy or blessed in his sense will be an enjoyable one, unless of course, some horrible events happen to mar our happiness. He's aware that sometimes just something goes wrong. A good life feels good, but that doesn't mean for Aristotle that everything that feels good is good. He wouldn't say, as we sometimes do, your feelings are your feelings, as if that settles things. He says rather that we need to be taught to feel pleasure and pain in the right way for the right things. And he says that if we take take pleasure in bad things, then that pleasure is bad. This might suggest that someone could live a very enjoyable life while being a bad person. But I think that's not really Aristotle's view. In the short run, Sure, we can enjoy bad actions. But in the long run, the inner contradictions between our actions and our natures as humans will emerge. Aristotle says that in the long run, a bad person does not enjoy his life. He doesn't like the kind of person he has become. And he is, so to speak, unable to be a friend to himself. It's as if he can't stand his own company. From Aristotle's point of view then, the point of life is to live in a way that best actualizes human nature. Morality is a matter of flourishing. Good actions are those in which we succeed in actualizing our potentialities in the right way. Bad actions are those in which we fail to actualize ourselves in the right way those in which we fail to flourish, whether through harming others, or through harming ourselves, or usually both. A good life will be pleasant for the person living it, and a bad life will be unpleasant for the person living it. If Aristotle is right then, feelings management is the wrong approach. The goal of life isn't to feel good. The goal of life is to live well. In the long run, the feeling good part will probably take care of itself, but it's not what we should be aiming for. Interestingly, this seems to line up, to some extent anyway, with what psychologists nowadays call the paradox of pleasure. People who aim at pleasure often miss it, while people who aim at doing things well have a pretty good time. So that is a rough look at Aristotle's view of what life is about. It's not about managing our feelings, but about living excellently. I think this view makes a lot of sense. It connects to our natures as living organisms, and at the same time, it highlights what is distinctively human, namely reason. It makes clear why living for pleasure is beneath us and yet it finds an appropriate place for pleasure. Nonetheless, I think it has to be said that from the Christian point of view, this Aristotelian vision is incomplete. According to Christianity, we can, by God's free gift of grace, live a higher kind of life than the one that Aristotle envisions Supernatural infusion of a divine gift makes it possible for us to live on a supernatural plane. To love God above all things and to love things other than God insofar as they are in accord with God's will for us, and thereby ultimately to live in a way that is worthy in God's sight. This is emphatically not a case of natural goodness, but of supernatural goodness. It's brought about by divine grace acting on our nature, healing it from sin and raising it up. Now explaining the relationship between the goodness of our nature and the goodness we receive through grace is a very tricky task. It's one of the toughest theological problems and a lot of disputes have arisen over it. For our purposes here, I think it's adequate to just keep our eye on the idea that whatever the precise relation between nature and grace is, the natural actualization of our natural capacities isn't enough for true and full human fulfillment. Let me say that again. From the Christian standpoint, living according to natural goodness isn't good enough. What counts as the best way to live will look different for Christians. The good life as imagined by David Hume, the poor man, or even Aristotle will be different from the good life as imagined by Aquinas or other Christians. But, you might ask, different how? One way of thinking about it might be as follows. Philosophical ethics discovers the proper form of human natural goodness and Christianity adds on some extras, stuff about prayer and worship and so on. In other words, this way of thinking says that supernatural takes natural goodness as it is and then adds some supernatural stuff to it. But another way of thinking, more radical perhaps, would say that human natural goodness is at least to some extent intention with supernatural goodness so that if we want to attain to supernatural goodness, we have to give up on some natural goodness in favor of something even better. It's not an easy question, but whether or not Christianity's vision of a supernatural spiritual life is in tension with a true and perfectly correct understanding of human natural goodness, Christianity's vision is certainly intention with the understanding of human natural goodness that people usually have, and by people that might include us. Even if, in some theoretical sense, the gospel isn't in tension with philosophical ethics, it's certainly going to be in tension with ethics as they are commonly understood. The gospel always challenges us on questions of sex, on questions of material wealth and consumption, on questions having to do with the use of force, and on and on. If our society's instincts match those of the gospel in some respects, they will fail to match it in others. Given our fallen nature, we should feel confident that without the guidance of Christian teaching, we will get at least some things wrong. Now let's talk about feelings again. First, if our views about what is good and bad in human life are likely to be off target, unless we have correction from the gospel, then so presumably will our feelings. Aristotle was more right than he knew when he said, as mentioned earlier, that we need to learn to feel pleasure and pain in the right way. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I find it hard to escape the thought that Christ here is talking not merely about showing love to enemies on the level of outward action, but also about feeling well disposed towards them even if we should still hate their bad actions. He's talking, I think, about re-educating our feelings away from what seems natural and normal to human beings, to something that is more divine. And indeed, the very next verse is, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And let's face it, a re-education of our feelings won't be fun or easy we'll have to learn to stop enjoying some things we currently enjoy, and to enjoy things we currently don't enjoy, or at least put up with them. This business about loving our enemies is only one example. The gospel might call us to take less enjoyment in consumer goods, or to walk away from certain kinds of sexual relations, or simply to focus less on that person whom we all find so incredibly fascinating, namely oneself. Coming to to live in a Christian way will surely bring joy in the long run, but there's no special reason to think that it will always be short. Sorry, there's no special reason to think that it will always be fun in the short run. These are kind of good thoughts with Lent coming up, right? Okay, now I want to make a second Remark about feelings. This one is tougher to get right and it leads into deep waters. I certainly don't speak with confidence. But anyway, here goes. In the Christian tradition, there's an important role given not only to joy, but also to suffering. And also an important role given to something that is neither suffering nor rejoicing but just plain blahness, dryness or aridity is what it's usually called. In spite of what Aristotle says about the way in which pleasure naturally follows upon virtuous activity, it seems to be part of the Christian spiritual tradition to say that suffering or aridity can play a role in our growing closer to God. Consider the fact that we all have attachments to created things, and that sometimes those attachments are inappropriate. We tend to love things regardless of whether God wants us to. That's a problem in itself, and it creates the danger that sometimes we'll love things even when God wants us not to. The world is good and beautiful, but it's also a kind of trap Like children on their birthday, we sometimes love the gifts more than we love the giver. So when things we used to enjoy become flat and uninspiring, or when life hits a crisis and we go through a period of suffering, this can be an opportunity for God to wean us from our attachments. It's a chance for us to learn how to live and act more purely for God alone. For example, maybe prayer or serving one's neighbor used to result in excitement or joy, but now it doesn't so much anymore. We might be tempted to say here, ah, I'm losing my faith. I don't love God anymore, and so on. But that only makes sense if the true test is how you feel. Maybe it isn't the true test, Instead of giving up, we can keep praying, keep serving others, and so forth, now in a more disinterested way. Whereas before, we might have been motivated at least in part by the pleasure we get from prayer and service. The fact that the pleasure has faded gives us a chance to go deeper, deeper than feelings. Of course, it's reasonable to hope that joy will return later in a deeper way. And this up and down process might happen any number of times throughout your life, I mean. But the point is that, again, one comes through God's grace to operate on a level deeper than feelings. Desire for God isn't necessarily the same as having warm, positive feelings about God. True desire can carry on even when we're just not feeling it. If this is right, then the relation between feeling good and living well is more complicated than Aristotle saw. Difficult times, times of dryness or suffering might not mean that anything is going wrong. Maybe it's a chance to learn how to love God in a less self-centered way. Let me add that when this is happening, God has not abandoned us even if we might sometimes feel like that. God is still supporting us, and we can be supremely confident that he will continue to give us the graces and consolations we need to remain faithful to our calling. If we remain true in prayer and service, God won't leave us behind. This question about how we feel about God can be looked at from another perspective. God is not just another being in this world, whom we can perceive with our senses or grasp with our mind. He is utterly transcendent, totally over the horizon, in the deepest sense possible. When we feel excitement or consolation in prayer or service, that might lead us to think that God is part of the world, just another being that we can come to terms with. If falling into this error is a danger for us, that it might be good for us if God sometimes withdraws from us or hides from us. Perhaps that's a way for him to reveal to us just how different he is, and also a way for him to provoke us into pursuing him more ardently. This point has been emphasized by the, by the writer Donald Haggerty, a priest of the Archdiocese of New York, who has had a long association with Mother Teresa's order. Father Hackerty says that when Jesus was a boy, hide and seek must have been his favorite game. As you may know, Mother Teresa herself went through long periods of feeling abandoned by God. Throughout, she stayed faithful in prayer, and she also stayed faithful in extremely generous works of charity. All of this is not easy to understand or to accept That's especially the case for us today, I think. We live in a society whose dominant model of life is feelings management, a model on which times of dryness and suffering are just to be avoided. What's more, we live in a society which is designed to keep us constantly stimulated. In fact, most people now carry in their pockets a very complicated high-tech device whose main purpose is to get them to focus on enjoyable trivialities. Maybe we need to put the phone away and spend more time with others face-to-face. Even more importantly, maybe we need to spend more time alone in silent prayer. If we do this, we'll quickly come face-to-face with boredom and with other unpleasant things, but maybe that's good. Maybe we need to find out what Augustine taught us, that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Thank you. This is the fun part for me.
1: What are the main religion in history? Oh, where does
0: that come from? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I guess it wasn't always the case. I mean, on one level, it's just part of fallen human nature, right? Everybody wants to have fun. No one wants to be bored and suffer. So it's always a potential that's there. Um. Okay, so I'll say something fancy, and then I'll say something dark. And unfortunately, I think the dark thing might be more important. So the fancy thing is like as you know a sort of consensus about human nature and morality breaks down as people lose their sense of divine transcendence um, which has been going on for I don't know hundreds of years really um, then that sort of sturdy sense that there's a right way to do things just seems fainter to people, and so they start following their own desires. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's the fancy thing. So the dark thing is this. Um, I don't know what to do with this, but I'm just going to throw this out there. Okay. Maybe part of the problem is stuff like electric lights, heat you know, reliable sources of protein, maybe the fat. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I feel like a crazy person saying this. But I'm thinking, like, you know, if you're in, like, you know, medieval France, you're always just one harvest away from dying. And, and, you know, the chances that you're going to get a really terrible disease and just die, they're not that small, really. And so you just kind of know that, It's not that great. I mean, what? Like, there's a sort of,
1: like, you are actually dependent on things that are outside of your control.
0: Yeah, you're dependent on things that aren't outside of your control. And a lot of them don't really care about you, like the weather. Yeah. I mean, maybe God controls the weather. That's a nice thought. But I'm just saying, like, if you leave, okay. So, so if that's true, then, then there's this. Now, of course, I'm not, like, against antibiotics and stuff, okay? Right, but I'm just saying that the downside of making things better is that you can get to where you keep putting off facing up to the ugly fact that life is hard, a lot of stuff goes wrong, and eventually you're gonna die. So is, is is technology
1: like actually or technological progression, like actually antithetical to a cultural Catholic imaginary position. Yeah. Why, I, could those right. things ever actually
0: coincide? Good. So is is Technology, technological advances that- consistent with a Catholic vision of life? So I think the answer is yes, but you have to be a lot more, you have to be a lot choosier. You can't just, every new technological thing that comes down the pipe, you can't say let's go for it. You have to think about it. Sometimes they're good for you, sometimes they're bad for you. It's always a double-edged sword. Yeah, and well you have to be careful not to stab yourself with that. Yes. That's the point, right? So, like, I mean, cell phones aren't intrinsically evil. But for most people, they're really, really bad for you. And the fact is, um, I mean forgive me for making a, a comment about myself, but like I carry this when I'm traveling. I don't carry one on a day-to-day basis. Because like I know that I'll look at it all the time. Yeah. I look at the internet too much as it is. If I had the internet in my pocket, to me that's like being an alcoholic and carrying a flask. <laughs> like <laughs> you cannot, you just can't do it. Right. So so um, I mean or like look at the Amish, right? I don't know that they always do a good job of this. But they're like, some technology is good, some technology is bad. We're going to let in the technology that serves the purposes of our community, and the technology that's bad for our community, we're going to keep it out. So I don't think technology is bad, but you do have to really ask yourself. Um, since I've mentioned cell phones, I'll put in a pitch, and no one asked me to do it. Um, but there's this, this author, whom I think has a lot of really good stuff to say, named Cal Newport. Maybe some of you have heard of him, Cal yes. Newport? Yeah. So he's one of these super organized people who goes home at 5.30 every evening and plays with his kids and writes books while being a professor. <laughs> um, but anyway, he, he has a book called Digital Minimalism. And it's about using digital technology a lot less. And um, it just, I mean, I'm just mentioning it. Um, it might not even be his most interesting book, but it just fits your question about technology.
1: Is, is media specifically the problem? That, that, that would, that would
0: no, the problem. it's not specifically the problem, but it is the problem of
1: our, je- our day, yeah, I think. There's just like, there's so much information and we have opinions everywhere.
0: And it's all, and I think it has something to do with the fact that it comes on screens. Like, I can't see the bottom of this. I'm not a psychologist. But just dealing with life on screen all the time is part of the problem. I'm utterly convinced. When I was, you know, an undergraduate, nobody had like cell phones did not exist. We didn't text each other to get together. Nobody had Instagram. None of that stuff even existed. We like met in the cafeteria and had dinner together. I don't even know how we did it anymore. Like how did like I don't know how we did it, but we obviously did. So, um, so I think it's the big challenge of our generation. But it's it's. Media, you know, social media and cell phones and all that stuff only accentuate based on human problems. They accelerate problems that humans already have had
1: ever since the fall. As AI gets better, do
0: you think <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can shut up if someone else to Yeah, I'll, I'll move on. Because <laughs> okay. I could talk for
1: like an hour about AI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Not so much. hard times sometimes
0: Sometimes they break it. Back. It's, no, I think it's a difficult thing, and you sometimes have to decide, right? Like, is this something that I should do? Like, here's something really bad that's going to happen. Should I just, like, face it? Not always. You know, like, if it's really cold, sometimes you should just close the window. That's okay. You know, you don't have to sleep in the backyard when it's below freezing. Maybe you should. You should think about it, but maybe not. But, but so I think there's a lot of truth in that. But um, like a lot of true sayings, it's kind of exaggerated and and, and dangerous. But yeah, um, if we're always running from hard things, that's that's definitely bad. Sometimes you just kind of have to face it. And in a way, everybody knows this, right? This is why we like sports. We we like hearing about people playing, like playing on, you know, with injuries. You know, if I was like oh, I need mean, her, you'd be like, you sit down, you know? <laughs> you should take the bus, I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. right. But, uh, you know, when people are doing it on TV, we are like, go, go, <laughs> look, he's limping, I'm excited, you know? <laughs> right, but it's because we recognize the value. Yeah, even if it's slightly bigger, uh-huh.
1: All right, so I sort of have kind of two comments. One that's relevant to this discussion and one that is more towards the talk. Uh-huh. For the first one, I'll try to keep it um, a bit briefer, but what I uh, had to say was that it's impossible to consider a view of morality without considering the social contexts and forms which are responsible for its origin and development. Yeah. And in particular with this feelings management stuff asking this, his first question was, um, how did it originate? You have to consider the social forms uh, that perpetuate it and that which it benefits. And consider that also. I think you see this a little bit in the talk itself, because for a talk about morality, there was very little discussion of community. It's all—it was you know, sort of all about ourselves, either our feeling view or our view of achieving something personally for ourselves. Um, and we live in a, a, a culture that is exceptionally individualistic. That's for true. For a number of reasons,
0: in uh, the past, people were basically uh, dependent economically on uh, extended families of some kind or something like that. Yeah. But with uh, the, the process of modernization, these structures break down,
1: yeah. and they get replaced with these individual ties to people who are moving, and that's considered economically efficient for a variety of reasons. So it makes sense that a morality would emerge that removes the obstacles to that kind of individualist thinking and justifies the modes of thought which are perpetuated in our uh, businesses and institutions, and et cetera. So that's my thought about that. Uh, Second thought is um, back to the difference between the Christian morality and Aristotelian uh, morality, which you uh, sort of, I think, tell me if I explained this wrong, but the first difference you put it out was that sometimes in Christianity, basically it's good to suffer, or sometimes things that are good for us that, that we may say are good for us by our nature, we have to give up a little bit and do other things because God says there are other things that are even better for us, right? Is is that a fair assessment?
0: Um, that's part of what I said, or something like that. It's yes. close enough for now, anyway. Okay. Like, if you're gonna nail me on the details, we might have to go over the details. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna. But, try yeah. Way. No, I mean, I'm I was. I wouldn't be offended. I just so, want to know the, which level of detail we're looking for.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to um, what your discussion, and of course, all of this is very closely, uh, I think, related to uh, McIntyre's yeah. uh, discussion. In, virtue. The whole first part of it. Yeah. Yeah, so, yes. yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, of course. So I, uh, then this is probably something that you already been thinking about, or maybe were, were, would have introduced if you had more time. But I'll just say it then, which is that uh, when McIntyre talks about the difference between the modern emotivist conception of uh, morality and the past conception, and he, and he details how it breaks apart, he, he says that the old morality relied on two things not just the conception of human nature as a fixed and you know solid thing but like, this is good for me as a human, like your squirrel example. Right? Yeah. Um, but secondarily, um, he says that uh, that older view relied on the view of human nature as it could be. And a difference between human nature as it could be, as it ought to be, and human nature as it in fact is. Right. And um, so the first step wasn't just the, the jump to complete the modernism via rejection of the idea that there's something like human nature, and we just need to pursue this whatever individual thing or whatever we think is good. The first step was actually the rejection of the idea of human nature as it could be. And he relates this, I think, to like Diderot's thoughts, like the people in France and before Kant. Um, he was saying that um, the first step they do is just reject the idea that there's anything wrong with human nature. Move towards sort of a pure naturalism uh-huh. that we can then deduce our morality entirely from naturalism. Yeah. Um, And I think that uh, when you spoke about eudaimonia, uh, I I think that it would be good to emphasize that uh, this difference, this idea that in in, in sort of Aristotle's thought, there's a difference between human nature and also in the Christian thought. The difference between human nature as it is and as it should be. It's not just, we know that it's good for us to be happy and healthy and uh, prosperous, and so we should do those things. But we also know that our own dispositions, our own ideas are themselves flawed. And I think that when you see the summer on the Mount, Christianity is actually just in complete agreement there because our own perception of us sure. is in fact, not always accurate and we have to be educated as to what that actually is. And yeah. so that's, so I don't that. Yeah, so now the stuff, let me see,
0: um, So starting with the second point what work does. You know, I, I mentioned Philip before, right? Mm-hmm. So this whole natural goodness thing, and in fact, that stuff influenced um, mcintyre a lot starts from trying to recapture the aristotelian idea that there's not just what we are but what we're supposed to be like, um, and so this this there's then the question is arises that is there some gap between human as they are humans as they are and humans as they should be? um so i think that's there in what i'm saying but i could have pushed it more Interestingly though, I think in a way, Christianity would push it even more. I mean, Christianity is simultaneously more pessimistic and more optimistic than Aristotle. Um, it's more pessimistic in the sense that it tends more often to say, that's bad, that's bad. Um, there's stuff that Aristotle thinks is pretty good and Christianity would say no, that's not a okay. thing. But on the other hand, I think Aristotle thinks, it just is the case that most people are not that great, and there's really nothing you can do about this. Um, where, at least in theory for Christianity, everybody should be good. Um, but anyway, that's a complicated story. Um, I think, of course, I agree that, um, um, well, okay, so I do think that there is, going back to the first point, I think there's such a thing as human nature, and then in a sense, There's a kind of generic morality for human beings. But uh, McIntyre is right. Uh, This is Alistair McIntyre, uh, who's taught at like 20 different universities. Um, uh, But he wrote a famous book called After Virtue, several other books, but that's the one that really hit the charts, so to speak. Um, um, Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. So there's a kind of general human nature. But the fact is, it's always filtered through the kind of culture that you live in. So there are ways of, of expressing goodness or badness of human nature that you, you can do in ancient Greece, but you couldn't do in 14th century Egypt, because you just have like, different social structures. Um, you know, like, There's a way to be a good human in you know, the court of Louis XIV. And none of us can do that because we just don't have, it's fine with me, but I mean, we just don't have that kind of cultural structure. We wouldn't know how to, we'd sort of be playing and we would really be bad at it. Um, So I think that's true. And I think it's also true, um, I I agree with what you said that that, that, um, in addition that one, cause of the rise of feelings management, I find this plausible, is, is uh, individualism. Um, basically, anything that puts pressure on you and says, look, this is just the way it's got to be, makes it harder to be a feelings manager. And being, having, and being in a sort of society where the only way you could live is by dealing with other people, kind of the same other people that you're stuck with all the time, because you live in a small town. And you just are stuck with these people. You have to like adapt to them, and it's not that you have to completely eliminate your own personality, but you can't just do whatever you want. And you know, um, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate this, but like there's there are possible ways now. You can sort of, um, you know, the more and more you live online, you don't know who you, you don't need to know who your neighbors are. You can just find lots of people that you like, and interact with them on the internet, and then, of course, very important. You find a few people that you really hate, so you can interact with them too, so you can be angry a lot. Because for some reason, this is like a big thrill. Um, But you're sort of cultivating this environment that's kind of tailored to yourself. Um, And you can do this um, less dramatically if you live in a really big city. If you don't like your neighbors, there's other people out there but if you live in a small town which I have done you know the people that are there like they're the people who are there and you know you put your kid in ballet and she's gonna be with those other people and there's no other ballet class to try you just gotta have to learn to deal with it um, and you know of course sometimes that's really bad and dark and you'd be really glad to leave that small town um, and sometimes it can be a horror and it's not a good thing to do Sentimental, but there's something good that they can make for hard times in the good. So I mean, I think that's a complicated story. But I think you're right that that um, individualism, probably stoked by urbanism and capitalism, is part of this. I think
1: that's going to be. Right.
0: Were you guys talking about capitalism? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: We were waiting. Yeah. It's,
0: It's funny because like it depends so much on what you mean by capitalism, right? Like suppose I say, look, I want like to be able to like make some lemonade and then say, here, would you give me fifty cents and I'll give you a lemonade? Okay, that's capitalism. That seems okay. Why should that be illegal? So if that's what capitalism means, fine. But then these other things happen and they're capitalism too, and they're like, whoa, this is maybe not so good for our society. So it's a very difficult thing to think through. Um, most of us, what? I
1: said intersection. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. So, shockingly, it turns out that life is very complicated.
1: Um, yeah. we one or two more questions?
0: Oh my gosh, there's three hands now. I can't
1: handle it. You choose. I can't handle it. Should a believer ever actively pursue
0: suffering? And if so, is that just another attempt of the same sort of good feeling? Um, I'm scared to answer that question. <laughs> um, I think you should, I'm worried about pursuing suffering, but you could pursue breaking an attachment which might require you to do something that for a time, at least, is going to result in something. I think there's some subtle difference here. Once you're like, oh, yeah, (laughs) pain. I think that's a problem. (laughs) But but you could say, you know, um, I mean, just to pick a sort of low example, right, you could say, like, you're trying to be more fit, so you're just going to run. And, and at a certain point, you know it's going to hurt, and you're going to keep running. I think that's different from running in order to hurt. Is that, is that not
1: trying
0: to attain a sort of good feeling? Oh, now we're back to the original thing. I mean, maybe it's just, maybe it's an attempt to attain fitness, and it turns out that being fit feels good most of the time. Uh, I mean, this is complicated. You know, Aquinas talks about this, and he says. You know we, we should aim at being good and then feeling good will piggyback on that so and you shouldn't feel guilty about that right it's just the way we are i know it's funny though you can feel like oh this is terrible i'm enjoying it now It's wrong you know uh no i mean you could get yourself in that frame of mind and then you just read just the right slash wrong whatever spiritual authors at the wrong time in your life and you're like this is terrible I'm enjoying my grandchildren. I must be a terrible grandfather. (laughs) There's something wrong with that line of thought. Uh, First of all, thank you for a
1: very thought provoking talk. Uh, My question relates to the the analogy about the squirrels and then how you applied it to humans and flourishing. Could you argue? A little quick and
0: dirty there, wasn't it? Keep going. So,
1: for example, um, and because I'm from a small town, and for a lot of my friends, flourishing was just graduating high school. Right. But then you go to a you know a bigger city where maybe a better school system, and flourishing meant you were going to go to go to college. Yes.
0: Yeah, okay, so there are, I can think of at least three issues here. One is simply when people are in different circumstances, different things seem to them to be what flourishing amounts to. And I think that one has to be open to the possibility that sometimes people are are too limited in what they're imagining as possible. Um, Another thing is that depending on what your, your social circumstances are certain ways of flourishing are just available or not right so if you live in the right kind of village you can have um, country dances with your neighbors and if you live in a different kind of place nobody knows how to do it and if you proposed it they would beat you up so like that's just not available to you right so that's a different way in which this kind of varies from circumstances And I can't remember what the third thing
1: was.
0: (laughs) Uh maybe it'll come to me. We could talk after.
1: negate a period of dryness versus a period where you're actually it's actually a vice or,
0: or a problem that you're um not actually having feelings or emotive uh things like that in response As a of- wait so at first at first i was getting confused because i thought you were talking about finding prayer itself dry but that's not actually what you're driving at I don't think. well in other words if i go through a dry period maybe that's fine but maybe after after a long time, I still find my kids boring. At a certain point, that's like not that's not a good look. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it's that's right. Dry a dry of the issue.
0: Yes, I, I think that's right. And I don't there's no formulaic answer to it. I mean, being, having a kind of I wouldn't want to say that. Having a kind of dryness in one's emotional life is itself a good thing. It's. I, I, I. It might even be best to say that in itself, it simply isn't. A good thing. But there's a good thing that can come of it. Um and that maybe this is the dangerous part. Now, maybe God sometimes kind of allows it to happen for the sake of the good thing that can come out. That's a dangerous way to talk, but I don't know. It's all we already know that God allows evil to happen. There must be some reason. Okay. So all right. But I think you're right that, that if you just say, um, um, you know, I'm just, you know, dry, blah, emotionally dead all the time. I've been like this for 40 years. This is so amazing. Like, maybe it's not amazing, right? Like, maybe there's something wrong. Either you've got like some other kind of psychological problem, or you need to like go in a different direction spiritually. Uh, and maybe something's not right and how to discern which is which in which circumstance could be a tricky thing, and that's where it's helpful to like have sometimes access to wise people who can help. But I think that's a very good point. You wouldn't want to just go, "This is great." You know, I've hated religion for thirty years. I must be a saint. Like that. Like that can't be right. Sweet. Well, uh, that's all, and uh, can I can
1: give another.